Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is a bit of a departure from our normal fare. It's about human rights issues in China. We thought that essentially our listeners might be so in the weeds of trade policy that that maybe they could do with a slightly broader look at Chinese government policy. And just a a little warning, this episode wasn't my finest moment in terms of structuring. We we jump around a lot between various different topics. But but the idea is that that hopefully we'll cover most of the, the basic, most important points. To help us work through this really complicated set of issues, we spoke with Dr. Sophie Richardson. Sophie's the China Director at Human Rights Watch. That's one of the world's most important human rights watchdogs. Sophie, hello. Good morning. So, so first of all, can we talk about uh, how the life for an average city dweller in, in China is different to the life of a Londoner or a New Yorker? Well, it's a hard question to answer because people do have different experiences. But probably most important, even urban dwellers don't have access to a free and uncensored internet. They don't get to participate in the political life of their country. Increasingly, they are subjected to quite a variety of surveillance technologies that can be used to give them better or worse access to public services. You know, and this is leaving aside uh, many other kinds of constraints that people won't necessarily run into in their daily lives. But, you know, things like the right to a fair trial or even having access to a lawyer or being able to start a political party or a newspaper. You know, these are not rights that are readily available even to urban, affluent, educated people. Can you tell us a little bit about how the judiciary in China works? How is it different from that in, say, the U.S. or the U.K.? Well, arguably the biggest difference is that the judicial system in China is explicitly mandated to serve the interests of the party, not to interpret the law and uphold it in a consistent manner according to the statutes. Maybe the best way of making that a more tangible concept is to talk about how wildly politicized the judicial system is, who gets prosecuted, when, on what charges, you know, do people have uh, access to a defense counsel of their choice? And, you know, some of the most high-profile cases we've written about in recent years, I think, illustrate this point. The idea, for example, that Liu Xiaobo, the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize winner, was prosecuted at all simply for having said that he thought democracy was a nice idea, you know, is, I think, a remarkable indictment of the Chinese judicial system. On the flip side, we see very senior Chinese Communist Party officials being arbitrarily prosecuted as part of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, where there may be evidence to support a prosecution on corruption charges, but why that person and not the other one? You know, if if the Chinese government was really serious about prosecuting corruption, I think we would see a lot more people, including people who are close to Xi Jinping, being prosecuted, not just uh, people who fall out of political favor. But also, you know, the overwhelming majority of criminal defendants in China don't have access to a lawyer. We have for decades written about torture and ill treatment 
in pretrial criminal detention, even though there are now, at least on paper, rules and regulations to prevent that and to rule out evidence that's been obtained through that kind of treatment. Uh, So it's very hard to expect any kind of fair trial or really even imagine that the laws exist to protect people or that they'll be upheld in a consistent manner. Could you explain what the concerns are about the Chinese government's treatment of minorities within China, but also elsewhere in the world? Well, the Chinese government's particular concern about Uyghurs, uh, who are an ethnically Turkic people who live primarily in Xinjiang, which is the Chinese government's name for the northwest region of the country, is that their distinct identity that they're Muslims, that they speak a different language, that they have uh, cultural practices that are much more akin to Central Asia, that that this distinct identity somehow makes them separatists. And particularly since the beginning of the U.S.'s war on terror, China has insisted that Xinjiang is a hotbed of terrorism uh, and that it has serious national security concerns there. There have been violent attacks in that region, but The Chinese government has laws on the books to answer to those kinds of problems and for people who've committed crimes should be investigated and prosecuted. Instead, what we've watched the Chinese government do is arbitrarily detain vast numbers of Uyghurs who are not suspected of any particular crime or or problematic behavior and detain them arbitrarily for months at a time, subjecting them to political indoctrination classes, forcing them to learn Mandarin, swearing their loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party to break this distinct identity. And so these are these camps that have been set up where there's been reports of, you know, a million people being subjected to this kind of treatment. We published a report in September 2018 detailing the establishment of political education camps and the treatment of people inside those camps. Uh, we also looked at the, the situation outside of those camps in Xinjiang and made the point that, you know, people are subject to extraordinary controls on their movement. Uh, literally trying to, you know, go from your home to a market requires going through multiple checkpoints. There are now restrictions on cultural practices, including what names you can give your children because the authorities decided that some names are, quote, too Islamic. Uh, the region is awash in surveillance technology that allows the authorities to track your behavior. Uh, we, we reverse engineered an app that's used by police in the region to show that they're effectively criminalizing perfectly legal behavior. You know, this app can track whether you start talking more or less to your neighbors or whether you go out the front door rather than the back door of your house. Uh, and that's deemed suspicious and authorities will show up on your doorstep and question you about that. But it's also you know, the, the, probably one of the most comprehensive, pervasive sets of religious restrictions anywhere in the world uh, on, on Islam as it's practiced in the region. Who can say prayers, where, when, uh, you know, who can actually serve as an imam, which imam can say which prayers at a wedding. You know, these are very intrusive highly personal, intimate aspects of people's life and their faith. And Chinese authorities seem to think that that they get to make those decisions. I think one of the worst policies we've seen in the region in the last year or two actually involves having 
Chinese government or party officials go and stay in people's homes with them. And this is ostensibly designed for people to get better acquainted with, you know, the largesse and the benevolence of the Chinese Communist Party. Many people rightly see this as, you know, extraordinary intrusive surveillance of them in their homes where, you know, you've got a party official sleeping next to you in your bed, eating with you at your table, you know, observing all of your family interactions and gathering huge amounts of information about you. And there's no basis for any of this in Chinese law, none. Has this treatment of the of the Uyghurs worsened? Can you give us an idea of the, the timeline here? There are a couple of proximate developments that seem to have prompted this latest wave of arbitrary detentions. One is the strike hard against violent extremism campaign which started in 2014 after some fairly small-scale attacks. Uh, in late 2016, a man named Chen Chuanguo, who had been uh, the Communist Party secretary in Tibet, was shifted over to Xinjiang. And he was known in Tibet for some very hard-line policies, and that, that seemed to qualify him for the job in Xinjiang. And shortly after his arrival in Urumqi, we started to notice, first of all, a significant uptick in the use of surveillance technology across the region. But then people from the Uyghur diaspora community across the world started sharing with us and others the fact that all of a sudden they couldn't reach their family members. One person called us here in Washington and said, I've been trying for weeks to get hold of my relatives and nobody's answering the phone. People were calling our colleagues in Australia, in Germany, in Canada. And over the course of that year, we got out and interviewed people uh, in a couple of different locations around the world. And actually, we were able to interview some people who had been, by that point, already arbitrarily detained in political education camps, managed to get out of them, and managed to get out of the country, who could describe to us, you know, not just the existence of these camps, which was debated up until that point, but could also explain to us how some of that technology was being used to identify them for detention in the first place. And so these two stories sort of fused into a, you know, a horrifying narrative about you know, modern technology meets dystopian authoritarian vision that you can engineer away an ethnic minority community's identity to make them politically loyal. Are there ways in which these the diaspora, these you know minority communities outside of China, are being affected by all this? One other aspect of the Xinjiang repression in recent years is that the authorities seem to be particularly sensitive now um, to relationships people have outside the country, and that can be as little as your cousin went off and studied in Malaysia. And when we wrote about the political education camps, we actually came upon a list of 26 countries the Chinese government had deemed as particularly sensitive. And if people had had contact uh, with others in that country or spent time there, that seemed to be a point of particular suspicion. At the same time, the Chinese government and party have long surveilled and monitored and harassed diaspora communities, Tibetans, Uyghurs, peaceful government critics outside the country. And what's happened more and more in the last couple of years is that people who are living outside the country, and especially people who have relatives they think are detained, have gotten calls from officials or, or other authorities in Xinjiang saying, 
don't speak up on behalf of your relatives, or it's going to be worse for your family members, or you need to come back uh, if you want to have any contact with your family. You know, that we see this kind of harassment well beyond China's borders of people around the world. And so it's not just the Uyghurs or other Turkic Muslims inside Xinjiang who are affected by these constraints. Even people who have acquired citizenship in other countries, you know, where their rights ought to be protected, are not fully protected from the long arm of, of China's harassment. What's the backstory for what's going on in Hong Kong right now? When Hong Kong reverted from British to Chinese sovereignty in 1997, the territory was guaranteed a whole set of rights and governance over everything other than foreign affairs and defense. So, for example, Hong Kong was already a party to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. That that set of, you know, that's really one of the cornerstones of international human rights law, and people in Hong Kong had access to those rights. In, on paper, people in the mainland do too, but China has never actually ratified that treaty. And so, you know, this is a very distinct set of rights that people in Hong Kong have enjoyed. So some examples of the rights that people in Hong Kong have enjoyed uh, that people in the mainland don't, access to a free media, limited franchise. We have to stress limited because, you know, Britain did not do what it should have uh, to give people the full right to run or to vote. Hong Kong has a very strange and somewhat rights-constrained electoral system. But at least people had some say in political affairs. People could protest and have, you know, enjoy certain other kinds of rights as well. And what we've seen happen since that time, and I think what we're seeing happen now, are concerns expressed by people in Hong Kong that those rights are slowly being eroded. There are fewer media outlets that can report freely. Promises to move towards universal suffrage have been pretty unilaterally rejected. Concerns even about issues like income inequality have grown without there being much of a response to the local authorities. And one of the most uh, worrying developments revolves around the legal system. I mean, for a long time, Hong Kong had a legal system or judicial system that was really the mirror image of the mainlands. You know, a highly professional pretty ferociously independent judicial system, deeply committed to the rule of law. Well, fast forward to, you know, roughly 2015, roughly 2016, and we were starting to see Beijing reach into Hong Kong and make judicial decisions before they had even worked their way fully through the process in Hong Kong. And that's a very bad sign. And some of the reactions we're seeing are to sort of the mainlandization of key rights that matter enormously to people in Hong Kong. So what are some examples of cases that Beijing intervened on? Well, there was a very complex decision about whether people could be uh, stripped of their membership uh, as as elected LegCo officials. And it was a very complicated case. And, and it was meant to work its way all the way through Hong Kong's court system. Uh, and Beijing couldn't be bothered waiting. The implications really are you know, that the Chinese government will make whatever, quote unquote, legal decisions it wants, whether they're actually in conformity with the law, uh, and that, you know, that what happens in Hong Kong's processes is irrelevant, that as, it, as the Chinese government does in the mainland, it will do what it wants, when it wants, and how it wants to, regardless of what 
you know, the law or the process actually says on paper. And that's not acceptable to a lot of people in Hong Kong. What's been the international response to to these more recent concerns? Arguably the most tangible recent expression of concern about Xinjiang in particular, what's happening to Uyghurs. In June of this year, we watched, sorry, in July of this year, we watched 25 governments come together to send a letter to the president of the Human Rights Council urging an international or an independent investigation into what's happening in the region, asking for access, expressing concern about mass arbitrary detention. China then turned around and submitted its own letter objecting to that and insisting that everything in Xinjiang is fine, and that was signed by 49 governments. You know, and we'll see where that debate goes when the Human Rights Council reconvenes. But increasingly, China is pretty muscular about trying to push back and use international institutions, you know, essentially to get away with gross human rights violations. Is there a history of the the Human Rights Council at the UN actually having teeth on these sort of matters, irrespective of China? One of the best recent examples, and it's a frequent point of comparison about what should happen in Xinjiang, you know, is the Human Rights Council's efforts at investigations into an accountability for gross human rights violations uh, for the Rohingya in Myanmar or for people who have been horrifically abused for decades by the government of North Korea. I mean, these are both situations, and obviously the Rohingya much more recent, you know, in, and in the Rohingya case where the European Union, uh, with the assistance of the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, came together to push for investigations, reporting back to the council, a view towards accountability, you know, and that's just in the last couple of years. And, you know, it's our view that if those governments can push for accountability for one group of persecuted Muslims, they should be doing it for another group as well. I think the big difference is that, you know, China is exponentially more powerful than Myanmar and presents a much more significant diplomatic challenge. And the Chinese government has come to expect to enjoy a a different set of standards and effectively impunity. How much do you think the international approach to China on these human rights issues is is influenced by the connection between the Chinese economy and and the rest of the world's economy? What do you think the relationship is between the economics and, and, and this human rights stuff? Oh, I think the relationship is very strong. We watch governments struggle all the time to reconcile what they're convinced will be negative trade or economic consequences with robust human rights interventions. And, you know, we've made the point over the years that being soft on one makes them appear weak to Beijing on the other and that it's in their interest to take a tough position on both. But one of the reasons why we're concerned about Chinese government efforts like the Belt and Road Initiative is not just that there are all sorts of human rights-related vulnerabilities baked into that development strategy, but it's just that many more countries that are likely to become, you know, less reliable allies on human rights issues because they're that much more uh, engaged with Beijing economically. Can you talk a little bit about what the, the Trump administration's approach to these human rights issues with with China has been? At the rhetorical level, key figures in the administration, Secretary Pompeo, Vice President Pence, uh, Ambassador Sam Brownback, have said 
you know, a, a good number of the right things expressing concern about China's treatment of ethnic minorities, such as the Uyghurs or Tibetans, expressed concerns about problematic prosecutions of human rights defenders uh, or issues like religious freedom. President Trump's comments about Xi Jinping being a terrific guy the day that Liu Xiaobo died in detention are, are, you know, not just appalling, but they're deeply problematic because they give the Chinese government the opportunity to decide which voice they want to hear or give a certain amount of credence. The other problem, though, is that we really haven't seen the administration follow through on consequential rights-related actions like the imposition of the global Magnitsky sanctions, which are specifically designed to impose consequences for rights violations. And I think it just gives China the impression or it gives the Chinese government the impression that, you know, this is this is merely a matter for rhetorical debate with the U.S. and that, that there won't be any negative consequences as a result of their conduct. Could you just explain a bit more about these global Magnitsky sanctions? Do, do any other countries apply similar sorts of things? The global Magnitsky sanctions are a relatively new phenomenon in U.S. law, and they are specifically designed to speak to people or entities that are credibly alleged to have committed serious human rights violations. Canada has now adopted similar legislation, uh, and some other countries, including Australia, are starting to discuss them. But this is U.S. law that allows the U.S. government to impose certain kinds of sanctions on individuals or entities that are credibly alleged to have been involved in serious human rights violations. Uh, The Obama administration imposed a few. We've seen the Trump administration impose a few, including on a couple of different actors in Asia. But the failure to impose those on individuals who are clearly part of the rights repression in Xinjiang, I think just sends the message to authorities in Beijing and in Urumqi that the U.S. isn't really serious about trying to impose consequences uh, for those rights violations. How does the trade war feed into all of this? Because, you know, an observer might think, who's just been looking at the economics, that actually the Trump administration has been fairly fairly aggressive, tough towards China. So what's what's going on here? Well, the Trump administration has clearly adopted a a much more brass-knuckled approach to China generally, uh, but it has consistently subordinated human rights concerns, including the ones it's, it's criticized the Chinese government over at key moments in the trade talks. A couple of examples, you know, of the Trump administration subordinating human rights concerns to trade issues. Vice President Pence was scheduled to give what was meant to have been a very critical rights-related speech of China around the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen this year in June. That got postponed. You know, some of us had been led to expect the imposition or the announcement of Xinjiang-related Magnitsky sanctions last December, but that turned out to be a key moment in some of the trade talks, and so those really seem to have now vanished from the agenda. But unfortunately, the Trump administration is not unique in this respect. We've watched successive administrations consistently deprioritize human rights issues uh, when there were uh, what administrations thought were more important problems that could get solved by leaving those issues aside. And the U.S. is also not unique in this regard. Plenty of other governments do this too. But, you know, from our perspective, 
you know, the world now faces a much more powerful and affluent and internationally sophisticated Chinese government and Communist Party that's carrying out massive human rights violations. And the governments that say they care about these things are not better equipped uh, or in some cases more willing to actually impose the kinds of consequences that might make the Chinese government change gears. One thing I think we're observing on the trade side is just how difficult it is to try to get the Chinese government to make the economic reforms that we might like them to make, even in just the trade space. How easy really is it for outside countries to achieve the kind of changes within another country in the area of human rights? I don't think it's easy to pressure the Chinese government over much of anything, but I think it's increasingly clear what the cost of failing to do that is for people around the world. And, you know, in all of our discussions uh, with governments about how to press for accountability for the Chinese government over rights violations in Xinjiang, we keep making the point there cannot be a separate set of standards for China. And that to allow it to commit these kinds of human rights violations and get away with it is to enable a kind of impunity that has terrible consequences for people all over the world. And, you know, we're the people who sit around all day and document things like torture and arbitrary detention. Uh, And if you had asked us five years ago if we had seen the catastrophe of this scale in Xinjiang coming, we would have said no. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to imagine Chinese government behavior Another 10 years down the road, when it's that much more powerful, that much more affluent, and that much less susceptible to any kind of accountability, and what that means for everyone. In the past few days, there was uh, a, some polling released by Pew Research that, that showed attitudes within the U.S. towards China worsening fairly dramatically. Uh, and so I think one of the concerns that people have um, is that there's so much anti-China rhetoric out there, some of it being pushed by the Trump administration, that it could go too far, that people could uh, essentially start to conflate the government's actions with the actions of you know the, the average Chinese person, that racism or, or just a sort of general anti-Chinese fuzzy sentiment could, could start to sort of poison politics in the U.S., Do you share those fears? Well, I certainly think that would be a tragic outcome. I mean, you know, China is, you know, an incredible country with, you know, an amazing uh, history and culture and extraordinary people. Uh, And, you know, not for a moment do we confuse people across China with the Chinese government. And in fact, I think it's been... Uh, a very successful strategy on the Chinese government and Communist Party's part to try to get the world to think about China, to, to wrap the people, the party, the government all together, such that to criticize China would somehow be racist or xenophobic or to criticize all people. Our concerns are about what the government and the party does, not about people across China. And I think you know, it's imperative around the world that people make distinctions between, you know, governments and people. And I think it's especially important to do that when you're talking about an authoritarian government. This is not the government 
we know that's been endorsed by people across the country. You know, the Chinese Communist Party has been in power for 70 years now, and it says it is the legitimate representative of the people of China. Well, how about putting that to a vote and seeing if that's what people really want? But let's make sure we're making the appropriate distinctions between those different levels and not playing into a Chinese government agenda that has us confusing all of these people and fueling the possibility for racism or xenophobia. That, that's the worst, one of the worst possible outcomes, I think. Sophie, thank you very much. Thank you. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Dr. Sophie Richardson, the China Director at Human Rights Watch. And thanks, as always, to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to understanding dimensions of Chinese government policy, two is better than one. Yeah. <laughs>